Churches gathered all around the globe today, praising his name, and we get to join in with that. King will return 
our place he led and conquered crowned him lord of majesty shall be the throne forever we shall let his people be scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 22. Pastor Michael will be preaching these in just a moment, and we will remain standing out of honor for God and His Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You may be seated. And we're going to go to prayer now. As we do, just want to mention that we are going to be praying specifically for Steve and Mayan Cad today, uh, one of the missionary couples that we support, and they're serving in the Middle East with a company or with a missions group called Sword Productions, making uh, gospel content uh, to go into very challenging areas. So let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth uh, in the song that we were just singing, that from beginning to end, Christ is the story, His is the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Lord, we, in, in our weeks, in our lives, we're so distracted by so many things that are, that are constantly pulling our attention away from what is really, ultimately, the center of reality, the center of the universe, which is Christ. And we acknowledge to you that even this week, we have in so many ways forgotten you, lived as though you didn't exist, even actively chosen to sin against you. And so, Lord, we bring all of that to the foot of the cross this morning and just say we confess that in so many ways we are not what we should be, and we need the mercy of Christ, or we need his mercy so desperately. And we thank you that it really is finished at the cross, that for everybody who trusts in Christ, there is full forgiveness, complete atonement, perfect relationship with you. Lord, we worship you and praise you for that this morning. And we pray that you would, in the songs that we're singing and as we pray and as we hear your word, we pray that you would reorient us towards Christ. He is king of the universe. He is Lord. All of creation is from him and through him and for his glory. And Lord, we don't want to live as if that isn't all important. We want to remember that it is And Lord, we pray that that reality, that dominating reality of Christ would animate our lives, help us to think about what we do, what we say, how we think, what we love. And Lord, most of all, we want to have our hearts more and more love Christ. 
So we just confess that so often our hearts love other things, but Lord, we, we pray today that you would exalt Christ among us. We want to love Jesus. We want to see him more clearly. We want our own hearts to be humbled. We desire to decrease, and we want Christ to increase among us. So we pray that you would do that this morning. Lord, we also pray for Steve and Mayan. We thank you so much for their uh, ministry, and we just ask your blessing on all of the content that they're producing. We pray that it would be able to uniquely go into these challenging areas in a way that it's very, uh, uh, or in, in ways that it's hard for more traditional means to reach. And we just, we ask that you would cause what they create to, to reach the ears and hearts of people who need, uh, to, who need to hear the gospel and who need Christ. And we pray that you would bring people from death to life as a result of what they're doing. And Lord, we do pray for their hearts too, just that you would encourage them in the work in whatever challenges they face because of the pandemic and other geopolitical issues, Lord, we just ask that you would still sustain them, encourage them, keep them faithful in their work. And Lord, we just thank you for them and for all the other missionaries uh, supported by grace and missionaries laboring around the world for the gospel. We praise you for them and thank you so much for their work in the Lord. Lord, we uh, thank you for this morning to be together. We pray that everything we do would abound to the praise of your glorious grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. yourself in your word so that we can know you. Lord, let it be for your glory this morning that we come. Let it be this for your glory this morning that we sing, that we listen. Um, and God, by your power, we pray that you would transform and change us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 19 to 22, which encourages word-driven worship. Word-driven worship. Jonathan Edwards was arguably the most influential evangelical theologian, and before his death at age 54, he sparked a movement of Reformed evangelicals, he fueled the rise of modern missions and preaching everywhere and shaped the cutting edge of American theology. In Edwards' biography, Douglas Sweeney dug to the core of, of what was, was behind his impact. And what he found was it was his profound, meticulous study of the Word of God that drove his powerful preaching, uh, his theological passions, and his loving and wise pastoral work. He had what, in his own words, was described as a sense of the glory of God, a, literally a sense of the glory of the divine being, and also a word-born gospel wakefulness. In B.B. Warfield's essay, Edwards and New England Theology, he shares that around the time of his graduation in 1720, Edwards was changed by the Word of God. And that from childhood, his mind had revolted against God's sovereignty. Edwards said, it used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But when he was changed by the Word of God, that, that changed. It disappeared and gradually by a process that he said he could not trace, it became for him a matter of rejoicing. 
so that he said the doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant and bright and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And one day he was reading his Bible. He was in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, and he read these words. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And as he read those words, he said, a sense of the glory of the divine being took over, and there was a new sense in his life quite different from anything he had experienced before. He fell in love with God because he read the word of God and it changed him. And what he said was he longed to be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in Christ forever. What happened in his life is understanding and his enjoyment of God grew. He went through periods of depression, to be sure, but the progress in his life was steady because Edwards lived and he fostered a life of word-driven worship, which is what we need. We, we need that kind of life in the midst of living in this world of woe to experience God's goodness, to experience God's glory as we come to the Word of God. What I want you to see today are four verses that are just as life-altering as the ones we saw last week. In, in verses 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Now in these four verses that we're going to look at today in verses 19 to 22, five commands regarding private and public worship. This imperative exhortation to a life of word-driven worship. Now, we've already seen, and it's pretty startling if you think about it, we've already seen nine imperatives so far just in verses 14 to 18. And now we're going to see five more imperatives in verses 19 to 22. That is a lot. There's 14 total imperatives from verse 14 to 22, which is a lot to absorb. It's a lot to take. But I love it. It's one of the earliest New Testament letters, and I love these brief exhortations that just flow from what God has done. We must remember that what God commands, the imperatives, are based upon what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Those are the indicatives. So the imperatives are built on the indicatives. And in 1 Thessalonians, believers are just, we receive such great comfort I mean, it starts like this. Believers, God loves you. God chose you to be saved. God raised Jesus. These are all indicatives. Who rescues us from the wrath to come. God approved you. Chapter 2, verse 4. Approved you to be entrusted with the gospel. That God's word is at work in believers. Those who welcome it. Put the welcome mat out for the word of God. Welcome it into their lives. God's word is at work in them. In chapter 4, we see that Christ will return for his church. We see, at the, we're going to see these verses next week, but in verse 23, God's going to sanctify every believer completely. You're going to be in the realm of glorification. 
This is all because of what God has done or is doing or has promised to do, the indicatives. And so because of all of that, then we obey the imperatives in God's strength for his glory. Now just review with me for a moment the the first six imperatives in verses 14 and 15 were aimed at the will of everyone in the church. Everyone's addressed and you're to, we are to admonish the unruly, we're to encourage the faint-hearted, we're to help the weak, and we're to be patient with them all. Everyone in the church be patient with each other. And then see to it, that, that's the imperative, see to it that no one pays back anyone evil for evil. And then always seek, that's the imperative, always seek to do good to all. That every person in the church is responsible for everyone else in the church, for the well-being of the church, for maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then last week, we saw three imperatives that are aimed at individual hearts. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in everything. This is what God wants. This is what God is working for. As someone once said, you know, God is easier to talk to than most people. And now, today, five more imperatives. From personal life to public worship, it just runs the whole gamut. And it calls the entire church to word-driven worship. Christ's church must be preoccupied with him in word-driven worship. Karen Burton Maines wrote this, Worship has been defined as being preoccupied with God. How do we learn to become preoccupied with God? By cultivating intentionality. By deliberately turning our minds toward divine preoccupation. Being preoccupied with God. Someone once said, too many Christians worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. But what God wants us to do is learn to live a life of worship so that preoccupation with God becomes a, a delightful habit. We've, we all have habits we want to break, you know, negative habits. We're like, we don't want to do that anymore. No, this will become a, a delightful habit in your life. And Christ's church must be preoccupied with him in word-driven worship. And what you're going to see in this very brief passage is five imperatives in four verses, but I'm going to give you three points, okay? Five imperatives, Four verses, yet three points. And I'm going to give them to you right now. Word-driven worship exists where believers in local assemblies, first, are sensitive to God. Sensitive to God. Secondly, obedient to the word. And third, discerning of truth. Word-driven worship exists where believers and assemblies are, first, sensitive to God, verse 19. Secondly, obedient to the word, verse 20. And then third, discerning of truth, verses 21 and 22. And look at the first things in verse 19. Just put your eyes on that. You you probably, if you know this verse, immediately you're thinking, oh, I know what this means. Word-driven worship is sensitive to God. Do not quench the Spirit. That's a really graphic word, quench, like quenching your thirst. This is the idea, though, of Don't take out a a fire extinguisher and put out the fire of the Spirit of God. Don't do it. 
Now, it could apply to making sure you don't neglect to do what we just saw in verses 16 to 18. Right? Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. The Spirit says to do that. Make sure you don't quench the Spirit. He wants you to do that. And I think this all blends together. It continues the flow of thought, and it goes into the, 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 the thoughts that follow. But the idea, quite literally, is do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench it. Don't stifle it. In the New Testament, this same word is used for putting out literal fires. There's a simple, straightforward command. Avoid any activity that will hinder the Spirit's work. It's in the present tense, which indicates that it was an issue that he's addressing in the church. Like, stop doing what you're doing. What exactly they were doing, we don't know 100% with, with confidence. We don't know for sure, but there's a lot of speculation on what this was about. Some see this directed towards members that were, I don't know, frowning on fellow members that exercised certain gifts of the Spirit. They would go immediately to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Many, many commentators will go there like immediately, near knee-jerk reaction. You might be thinking that right now. Those who hold that view would see a close connection between this verse and the, the phrase on prophecy that follows. It's an intriguing argument. But here's the thing. There is no information in the context of 1 Thessalonians that indicates that that was an issue in Thessalonica. Later on, it was an issue in Corinth, for sure. But what we can probably, we can know this with some sort of certainty. We can probably uh, ascertain this, that if Paul had the gifts of the Spirit in mind, he would have addressed this much more clearly to leave no question about it. And here's the other thing. You go, well, what about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? They, well, they couldn't lean on that. It wasn't written yet. <laughs> At this moment in time, 1 Corinthians wasn't written yet. So it makes most sense to take this as a general command to live a spirit-filled life. To be sufficiently open to the inspiration of the Spirit. Paul wanted them to experience the joy of the Lord. They need the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, this incessant joy, this persistent prayer, this genuine gratitude were all evidences of the Spirit's work in them. Now, in Ephesians 4, verses 30 and 31, we have another word that you're not supposed to do to the Holy Spirit. It's do not grieve. So you've got to do not quench, do not grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Get those out of your life, along with all malice. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. We are to walk or to live by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Romans 8 speaks of being led by the Spirit of God. The way that you make sure that you don't quench the Spirit and then subsequently grieve the Spirit is by living in a way that pleases Him, with pleasing to God in His strength, for His glory, saying no to sin, putting away all evil and destructive tendencies out of your life. Because when you quench the Spirit, you grieve the Spirit. When you quench the Spirit by choosing sin, then you grieve the Spirit. And the idea is the fire 
of the Spirit of God is not to be extinguished by sin. Don't take out a fire extinguisher and put out what the Spirit of God intends by choosing to sin. And if you go back to the last, last little phrase in verse 18, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, this, this rejoicing, this, this praying, this thanking. When you talk about the will of God, and you see this in Scripture, there's the decreed will of God that nothing can hinder. If you're a Christian today and you're trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, he shed his blood in your place as as your substitute. You believe in the Lord Jesus. You're saved. You believe he died for your sins on the cross. God has decreed that you would be saved. He chose you before the foundation of the world. It's going to happen. Like everything that God decreed, his will of decree, nothing can hinder. But then you have his will of command. That's all these imperatives in these verses we're seeing here. And these commanded will of God... God's redeemed people may or may not obey. You have a choice to obey these or not. That's why God wants you to make the the moment-by-moment conscious decision to walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit of God, and not carry out the desires of the flesh. God wants you to be sensitive and, and respond to the Holy Spirit, always rejoicing, constantly praying, giving thanks universally, and obey the Spirit of God because He produces good in your life. So word-driven worship is sensitive to God. Do not quench the Spirit. Now the second idea flows right in from it, and word-driven worship is obedient to the Word. Do not despise prophecies. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. To despise means to treat with contempt, to look down upon, to, to reject, to, to consider as nothing, like to make absolutely nothing of it to degrade, to, to downgrade. Like, I'm going to think less of that, and that's not for me. Prophecies are inspired utterances that God gave the gift to some people of speaking his word. It's referring to the word of God. Now, in the Bible, prophecies can refer to a spoken revelation from God. You see it in the book of Acts. But primarily, it's about the written word of God. Scripture in Matthew and Second Peter and multiple times in, in Revelation. There are authoritative messages of God from, from his recognized mouthpiece. Now, that's not me. I'm preaching the word right now. But what, what this is referring to is Paul was, was writing down inspired scripture as the Spirit led him, moved him, inspired the word. What this is pointing to for us is that God's word read or preached is to be accepted eagerly. It takes us back to chapter 2, verse 13. I've quoted many times, but if you take verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this. It was a constant gratefulness for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This was being written to them before the New Testament was completed. God was still speaking his word. He was revealing his will for the church via prophets and apostles. And God gave some believers the ability to reveal the future. You see it in the book of Acts. To declare God's will, you see it in the book of Acts. Ephesians 4 tells us that God gave prophets to the church to equip believers. 
Ephesians 2.22 says that that foundation that God built of the church through the apostles and prophets was, was laid. It, it, it was done once, once for all. But in that moment of time, false prophets existed. And they were, uh, they were attacking the church, literally, but from within, even, in a deceptive, subtle way. And they were proclaiming twisted messages. They were masquerading as genuine, and they were causing confusion in the church. They were falsifying the data regarding Jesus' return, and they were affecting believers negatively. Such that Paul says, do not despise. Genuine revelation, essentially. They had to test what they heard. Because what they had heard that was false had a souring effect upon the church. Some would have become biased. It, it, apparently, some had become biased against teaching. They were skeptical ears. They were unresponsive. They were unreceptive to the word of God. They discounted the genuine because of the deception of the counterfeits. They became very wary. And Paul is warning here against an overreaction. Give the word proper place. Today, we do not have prophets. We have the complete Bible, the complete Bible to guide us. God gave the Bible to us for, for salvation, for, for transformation. So don't reject the read and preached word of God. You, you quench the spirit when you shut his word out. That's his voice. I mean, I think some people live with ear pods on all the time, ignoring God and what he says in the word. Everything in the church is to be word-driven because God reveals himself in his trustworthy word. This is how you know the gospel. This is how you know who the Holy Spirit is, by the word. In fact, turn to Psalm 19. There's some beautiful words here that really reveal the glory of God in the word. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Just read through them with me. It just shows like names for the word of God and and what the word of God does, and then the effects upon those who receive it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, that sense of the glory of God as we read the word. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. proclamation of the will and ways and commands of God as well as future things are contained in the word of God. There are benefits that build, it builds up believers. The word of God is a sword that protects. Ephesians 6, a sword that protects and a compass that directs. And a church is only as strong as its commitment to, to read and preach and teach and obey scripture. You can look no further than 2 Timothy chapters 2 through 4. Look at these with me for a moment. Some very well-known verses, by the way. I mean, you got the Awana verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
Literally, that means to cut a straight road. That means to, to put it out straight as opposed to things that are crooked. Because verse 16 says, avoid irreverent babble. Because it will lead people to further ungodliness. And 17 says, and their talk will spread like gangrene, cancer. People will swerve from the truth, verse 18. Now you look over into verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Paul to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing for whom you have learned it, and from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word equipping is the idea, this complete and equipped is the idea of, of in those days of a sailing vessel that was fully outfitted or a cart that you would have that would have everything on it, or now it would be like you're a fully loaded car. But the idea is that God will give you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do. You get into chapter 4, and it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How important God's word is for a local church and for your life. Think about it. It was hard for them in that moment. They had the truth, but there was falsehood. They had the truth, but they, some people were telling lies. And, and it's hard for us today. There's no shortage of false teaching. And verse 20 is speaking of obedience to Scripture. Don't, don't reject the word. Don't despise what the Spirit has said. Maybe, maybe, perhaps in the church there were some that thought, well, preaching is given too much attention. Maybe, maybe that perhaps there was someone in the church that the presence of the false teachers led them to abandon, abandon preaching altogether and said, you know, I'm not going to even listen anymore because there's been so much falsehood. Maybe they became very skeptical everything that was said. Whatever the case, they were to place a high value on the proclaimed word of God. They, and it, it's evident there were some that were not valuing the word as they had been taught. I know it's very common for Christians when faced even with the word rightly handled in context according to authorial intent to immediately say, I don't agree. Just immediately, like, I don't agree, without any testing, without digging for intended meaning. We can have so many discussions and even healthy debates where you go, I don't know, I don't know if that's what this is saying, but we have to do the work, we gotta, we gotta look through it, we, gotta, we can't just go, I'm gonna dismiss it right away. If we are not to despise prophetic inspired utterance, also known as the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God, we must accept it as the bare word of God at face value and then test. But we should not read meanings into it to fit our desires. Our will must be bent to his, not the other way around. Like God meant one thing when he, when he said what he said in, in what's recorded in verse 20. He didn't mean 15 things. 
There are some things in the scriptures that are hard to understand. We all know that. We have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Scripture is verbally inspired by God. Completely without error in all that it communicates, and the inerrant texts are given by God with perfect wisdom and purpose for his people, for our good, for his glory. That's why we get a sense of the glory of God when we, when we read the scriptures as believers. The word of God is clear in all that it communicates, and, and it's sufficient. The word gives us a theological foundation. It, it, we see the effects of scripture upon our life, upon God's people. And that's why we want to preach uh, expository sermons that are Christ-exalting and biblically uh, driven and heart-piercing, rooted in authorial intent. We don't always get it right. We do this imperfectly, but we bring the word of God to bear upon our hearts. But we know this. The spirit of God does the work of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God through the word of God. It is not a preacher getting up on his soapbox and going, I've already decided to say this. I'm just going to like, you know, twist the word to make it say what I want it to say. We are constrained to preach the word, what it says, regardless of our personal opinion. That we would allow it to dictate our direction. Read it, explain it, apply it. And the people would hear it and receive it and obey it. The word of God is the means by which God grows Christians, grows churches in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's anchored in God's authority over all of life. Where we, where we get into the word and we praise the glories of God's grace in Christ. We behold, we behold Christ's beauty in scripture. Set your mind and you set your heart on, on the only sovereign who speaks through his word. Convicting, saving, sanctifying as he wills and we follow the pattern the church has always followed. Main, main point of the passage needs to be the main point of the sermon as best as we can get it in context and apply a grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic, a way of handling the scriptures that believers have handled the text since Bible times. Like We don't want to be sloppy. We don't want to be haphazard. It, it doesn't start with what you think it means or what I think it means. It looks at words and grammar and syntax and context and tenses very closely discern the meaning and the intended outcomes but a lot of times we don't get that far because we read into the Bible the meaning that we want and there are even many persuasive pastors who don't do careful work in the text and I do this very imperfectly as Peter said something's hard to understand but the word will never lead you astray the word will never give you conflicting meanings a solid handling, solid, solid handling of the word of God will lead you to joyfully understand what it says and means most of the time sometimes you still go wow it's you know i i still don't i don't know that's why we ask advice that's why we talk with one another but in the bare word of god and, and for most things in the word that are pretty clear we either we come to a decision and here's what it, here's what it is i'm either going to accept it or go with my own mind the mind of christ is revealed in scripture we're to be under the word, not over it. It decides we don't. And we should never come away from it and say, wow, I got it right. Everybody else got it wrong. You know, not proud, not arrogant, not puffed with conceit because we figured it out. But humble, 
and bold to precisely preach the word and proclaim the gospel. Some despise that. February 4th. February 4th, 1555. John Rogers was burned at the stake by Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary. His crime completing the translation of Tyndale's Bible and preaching the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Steve Lawson keeps a picture of John Rogers taped inside his Bible to remind him of the courage needed to preach the word of God without fear of man, but in the fear of God. My prayer would be that we would all be filled with a humble, bold courage and conviction to proclaim the gospel to all without fear. Because word-driven worship is sensitive to God and it doesn't quench the spirit. There's, you don't take out a fire extinguisher and just put out what God is doing. Word-driven worship is obedient to the word. It doesn't despise. It, it's, it doesn't despise the sword or the compass. And, and then the third point. We're going to look at the last two verses here. Word-driven worship is discerning of the truth. Does the hard work of discerning the truth. Verse 21 says, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. These last two verses have to do with discernment. We're committed to testing and examining closely to determine authenticity. To, this same word is used, Ephesians 5.10, test to see what pleases the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test to evaluate the genuineness of your faith. Romans 12, 2, test to determine God's will. But here, it's about not dismissing the preached word or the read word, but evaluate the accuracy and the truthfulness carefully. John Calvin put it this way, speaking of these verses, Paul prohibits them from condemning anything without first examining it. He admonishes them to exercise judgment before receiving what may be brought forward as undoubted truth. It's the idea of being like a Berean. We read in Acts that the Jews in Berea were more noble-minded than the Jews of Thessalonica. They're hearing the gospel, and they basically put everything to a scriptural test. They go back into the Old Testament, and they see if what is being preached is accurate. I mean, for believers, all of life ought to be, ought to be viewed through the lens of Scripture. Before you accept teachings, before you choose a course of action, before you set off in some new direction, the first question should always be, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What might please God in this situation most? Make a wise decision after that. But if something's evil, if, if God says, don't do this, and the Bible is very clear about it, then reject it. Like, stay away. You know, keep yourself from it. The same word is used about avoiding sexual immorality. When it says avoid every appearance of evil, same word. These are instructions for church gatherings and, and every Christian as we live life. It's not just about attending services. It's about all of life regulated by God's commands. Think with me of the human condition. I mean, every day we go through like every emotion, sometimes in five minutes. Love and hate. Friends and enemies, depression, joy, pain, sorrow, happiness, sadness. We go through and it runs the gamut in our, in our hearts. So the word must drive a Christian's life or else 
our mind takes over. And we somehow think we're the supreme commander of our life, and we know that ruins us. God didn't design it that way. It's not the way God designed it. Left to ourselves, we ruin ourselves. Only God can renew our minds. Only God can remake us. And we know, some of us, we, we know, we know, all of us, we know this. We sometimes choose evil. Sometimes we choose evil. But praise God, when we confess our sins, he forgives us. And in, even in that, you see the glory of God in the gospel. He wants to do us good, and he wants us to do good. We want to be preoccupied with God's sovereign headship over all. To look to him for life. You know, the Bible tells us in him we, we live and move and have our being. That from him and to, thi- to him and through him are all things. So we are to examine, try to determine the genuineness, prove after testing everything. Just don't downgrade the proclamation of the word. But we love God and he speaks to us through his word. We love the word because we love God. It's impossible to love the Lord you got with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength without loving the word. I mean, some of you might go, well, but I'm struggling to love God. That's honest, that's good. It's good that you're honest about it. You're struggling to love God? Go to the word and, and see the God who loves you. Get into the word. He reveals himself in the word. That's how we know about the Holy Spirit. That's how we know the gospel. You can't know him apart from his word. He's revealed his works, his will, his ways via his word. In the word we see, God gave his only son to save us because he first loved us. We see that in the word. We see in the word that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. We test everything according to the word of God through the lens of scripture. Sometimes it's like a telescope where you're kind of looking ahead. Sometimes it's like a microscope where you kind of have to get into into some details. But either way, you see a sense of the glory of God in the word. That we would be intentional to be preoccupied with God in word-driven worship. I mean, think about if you don't enjoy God and his word. Think about what it's like. You're like an explorer without the compass. You're like the scientist without a microscope. You're like an astronomer without the telescope. You're like a a trumpet player without a trumpet. You're like a soldier without a sword. You're like a tennis player without a racket. You're like a quarterback without the ball, which needs to be inflated properly, by the way. You've got to be a student of the Word. Be first into your Bible, not into the news feed. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 21, hold fast to what is good. Can you continue to believe and practice and follow, lay hold of, take possession of, cling to what is good? Wholeheartedly embrace it. But if, if there's something evil or unbiblical, shun it from your life. I didn't say a person, I said a thing. If there's someone that you know that's doing evil, befriend them, love them, help them. And five years later, after he wrote this letter, Paul would say this to the Romans, cling to what is good. Cling to it. It's a determined tenacity to retain the benefits of the beauty of the word of God uh, like a a pit bull with a tennis ball. You're not going to let go. It's a sword that protects. It's a compass that directs. 
You know, if you, if you desire to be preoccupied in this kind of life of worship, you, you need to follow the compass faithfully. You need to hold on to the sword firmly. You need to cling to good and reject evil. And if you think about it, a worship-driven church that's driven by the word of God, loving God, worshiping God with all our hearts, and going to the word over and over again, that's the safest place to ask every, Christ, every question you have in life. We, are, we have so many questions in life, but we need to answer it accurately from the word of God, not our own minds, and then be willing to accept the answer and not despise it. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 5.14. Solid food is for the mature who by practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's, it's hard work, but the outflow is love for Christ. The outflow is adoration of God, even singing, not just when we gather, but when we gather, but in your life, in your car, in your house, a singing that is drenched with gospel goodness and biblical truth, where you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, outcomes, relationships driven by God-pleasing motives, and you love all people, and you say, I want to reach the masses with life altering gospel of the grace of God in Christ. You just get so fixated and so preoccupied with God's goodness that you want to do these things. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And then verse 22, and abstain from every appearance of evil, every form of evil. Abstain from it. That means get away from it. Be off from it, literally. Avoid it. Keep yourself from every form of evil. Stay away from any kind of evil that's masquerading as genuine because then the body of Christ will be blessed. Then even unbelievers will hear the true gospel. But what we should do is avoid any teaching or praying even or singing that is not aligned with the solid handling of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying throw away all your records. I didn't say that. I mean singing like we do as Christians, okay? There's lots of songs, beautiful songs God has given uh, people ability to write. I'm not saying that. I'm saying singing as a church or as a believer in terms of wanting to praise God that is not aligned with the solid handling of Scripture should be avoided. I mean, we work very hard here at Grace to pick songs that are biblically accurate and gospel-drenched for a reason because it, it gets into our hearts. We are the temple of the Spirit who indwells the church. When we take over, we, de- we, we deny the work of the Spirit. You know what the, the most important, I think the key verse here is? Abstain from evil or else you're going to be quenching the spirit. It's, it's like picture of just a sign, the keep out sign, the warning, like this is bad for you. Do not enter. You know, the tire spikes are going to flatten your tires. I was thinking, okay, so how do I get a handle on this? And I, my mind went straight to the words we speak. The words we speak. That's a, that's a heart-level thing. There was an article uh, it was about turning up uh, the volume, how our culture has turned up the volume on foul language. And uh, some USA Today article, and it said that parents who don't allow swear words to be uttered at home may want to uh, watch things uh, with the volume down because there's so much uh, profanity. And one executive actually said this. They said, concerning the coarsening of language in America, we have to look at that, but America has matured 
so we have to accept that. There was another article, it was a poll of high school principals, 89% said they faced profane language and provocative insults toward teachers and other students on a regular basis. And while we can be concerned about that, I'm a little more concerned with my own heart and what comes out of my mouth. Let's talk about the home front, shall we? Let's not think about what's going on out there. Let's think about what might be going on in here or in our households. Shouting, yelling, screaming, swearing, insulting, calling names. First hour, there were like siblings texting each other, I'm sorry. I mean, think about parenting choices. When a parent does those things, it increases the risk that their kids will rebel and suffer the symptoms of depression. Not always, but many times. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. No garbage word come out of your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. We're told to have our words seasoned with grace. Jesus said the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And I think we all know, I know, what sometimes comes out of my heart and out of my mouth. Word-driven worship. It exists where believers in assemblies are sensitive to God. They don't quench the spirit. They don't take out a fire extinguisher and douse what God is doing because of their sin. Uh, they, don't, they don't become hard-hearted. They confess their sins. And, and also when we're obedient to the word, a compass, that sword, and we're discerning of truth, and we test things and Go to our Bible first, not our news feed. We, we keep going to the Bible, not the apps all the time. I mean, we do all do that too, but first, like get the good stuff. Now throw away the garbage and go for the steak or your tofu or whatever you like. I was just thinking about this this week and I kept thinking to myself, something kept coming to my mind. And I kept thinking, there's global conflict going on. I mean, you're hearing about it. What's going on in Russia? What's going on with Ukraine? What's going on with China? What's even going on with Canada? And we think about America uh, melting down with moral issues and think about all the turmoil. And you think about the emergencies uh, by the handful from the egregious to the ridiculous, of course. But we think about our life and you think we're navigating all these personal issues. We're navigating dealing with our own sin. And the thought kept coming back to my mind, well, word-driven worship might seem frivolous or a bit thin or irrelevant in light of cataclysmic events and I'm, I guess I'm just here to tell you what the answer that kept coming back to me was no 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 that is the most important consideration that should drive the discussion of everything else it just gets pushed out of the way but it directs us to what's best the real world is not on cable and network news it's not on your news feed the realm of the true lies in the unseen. God sees the heart, and we all know what goes on in our hearts. So we must remind ourselves again and again today, the focus of life in a life of word-driven worship must be on Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. We get so distracted. We get so preoccupied with so many other things to the point where even when we're interacting with other people, we don't want to look them in the eye or listen to them or attend to who has needs, but Christ's church must be preoccupied with him. 
Praise God that he grants and empowers this kind of a life of worship. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and thank you for your grace, even in giving us this opportunity to get together today and to think through and to receive and to rejoice in you and your word. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you do in our hearts that only you can do. I pray that you would have your will, your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us if you're able to. We'll close with singing. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me, and my sails have all been torn in the suffering in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few i will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed Christ the sure and steady anchor While the tempest rages on When temptation claims the battle And it seems the night has won Deeper still then goes the anger Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief hopeless somehow oh my soul now lift your eyes to calvary this my ballast of assurance see his love forever proved i will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the waves of death when these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath we will cross that great horizon clouds behind and life secure and the claim will be the better for the storms that we've endured Christ, the shore of our salvation, 
ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. There are many ways to get involved and connected at Grace. Bible classes, home groups, men and women's groups, youth ministry, children's ministry, tons of ways. encourage you to get connected. And we're going to close with the two verses we're going to look at next week. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for this opportunity you've given us to be together today. May you do the work in our hearts that you desire. And may our fellowship be sweet. And may our outreach be fruitful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.